Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Back when movies were relatively young and the major studios were establishing themselves, each of them carved out a genre or a style that represented it, unlike these days when the studios really don't have individual identities. Warner Brothers made gritty, timely, violent crime dramas with the likes of James Cagney and Humphrey Bogart. MGM made big-budget, big-star, glossy musicals with color and grandeur from their vast carousel of huge stars. And then, of course, there was Carl Lemley's Universal Pictures. Though now their studio is geographically the biggest in the world, if not in terms of box office these days, they were scrappier, more willing to dip their toes into the blood and muck and became famous for their classic monsters. What a wonderful run they had, starting in the mid-20s with The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera. But the 1930s really opened the gold mine of famous monsters. Dracula and Frankenstein both came out in 1931. The Mummy in 1932, The Invisible Man in 1933, Werewolf of London in 1935. Then came The Wolfman in 1941, The Creature from the Black Lagoon in 1954, and Norman Bates in Psycho in 1960. They became the monster studio and it provided them with huge success for decades. They paired up the monsters in sequels and milked the life's blood out of them until finally, after having the monsters, starting with Frankenstein's, meet Abbott and Costello, it was hard for audiences of the day to take these creatures of the night seriously anymore. But for a couple of decades or more, Universal has tried and tried to raise their classic creatures from the dead, mostly without success. There have been reboots from a couple versions of The Mummy, a couple unmade versions that I worked on, one with Clive Barker, to The Wolfman, to The Invisible Man, to Renfield, with projects that have been in development that never reached the screen yet, like The Bride of Frankenstein, which Bill Condon was developing for years, and now I hear has just been announced with Maggie Gyllenhaal and Christian Bale as we're recording this. The two characters who've most been adapted to the screen from written material are Sherlock Holmes and Count Dracula. However, no one has ever gone back to the captain's log contained within Bram Stoker's original novel that takes place on the Demeter, the ship that brought that dreadful vampire to London from Transylvania. Until now, we're going to talk with the talented director of The Last Voyage of the Demeter, Andre Overdahl, about what it's like to bring new blood to an old monster. Andre, it's good to have you back. We, you were here last time for uh, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, but we learned a lot about your beginnings in Norway. So tell me, what was your first introduction to these classic monsters that you're now on the team? Oh, I'm very happy to be back. Uh, thank you for inviting me again. That's uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I, uh, no, I mean, I've loved monster movies my whole life i've loved um 
that you know all through the ages uh but i gotta say i probably discovered them in my own time in the 70s and 80s um especially in the 80s i guess um and um and there were monsters i guess were more <laughs> human i guess at that time more slasher oriented more less than, supernatural huh yeah less out and out monsters the way we probably think of them today um but uh you know of course i've gone back and seen all these movies but i gotta say the thing obviously is the one probably an alien and these classic movies that have become you know have become classics um are the ones that gets you know are stick with you was it hard to be a monster fan in a town in norway when you were growing up I mean, yeah, I mean, I didn't really live near a theater. So I was more a child of VHS. I was more finding, I was, I lived in video stores my whole upbringing. Every day after school, I would run into yeah. the video store and pick up, stand there for hours and read on the back of movie after movie. And especially in the horror section, for some reason, I was always very attracted to that. So I watched, uh, rented everything I could get a hold of and remember having my parents get me movies that weren't available in Norway from London when they went there for vacation or something. Well, what is the situation? How do you become a filmmaker in Norway? Is there a big uh, film industry, a Scandinavian film industry that's centered in Norway? Yeah, I mean, every Scandinavian country has their own governmentally um, supported film industry. And there are grants, there are, you know, you kind of have to have some relationship to the Norwegian in Norway, the Norwegian um, uh, Film Institute to be able to get a movie off the ground somehow. And that was also true for my first movie, Trollhunter, that that was half financed by the Norwegian government. And here it was, a monster movie. How difficult is it to convince a governmental entity to support a monster movie? I mean, I have to credit the producer, uh, John Jacobson, because it was entirely based on his support for the movie. He loved the concept. He loved the idea. And he literally just went into the film Institute and made, you know, obviously made all the official applications and everything, but he convinced them based on his weight as a producer, that this was something we have to make. This is going to be an amazing movie. This is going to be something you've never seen before. And somehow they, they bit, they, you know, they, they joined us on that journey. And he was right. It became something really special that was a hit at the festivals, was released in theaters all around the world. And suddenly you are a master of horror in certain ways. And <laughs> tell me what the reaction to that was from different things. Were you offered a bunch of independent horror movies, studio uh, movies, anything along those lines? How, what was the reaction career wise for you? I mean, it was kind of, we went to Texas to Fantastic Fest um, to show it as a secret screening the first time. And I was terrified. I mean, I was terrified <laughs> of showing the movie whatsoever, but especially with an audience that isn't Norwegian, that won't understand the jokes and all the inside stuff that the movie is filled with. And it was just, uh, and in the middle of the night, we were watching it with an audience and they just loved it. And it was so amazing. Um it was just, uh, yeah, it was just one of those experiences that, you know, 
light your life on fire. And, well, uh, it, it seemed yeah. like it was obvious that it would appeal to a Norwegian audience, but was it a shock the way that it went over with other international audiences? It was. I mean, my ambition was that it would. I, I you know, I love Hollywood movies. I love the way Hollywood tells stories. But I have my own point of view into things. I, I'm looking at the world from a Scandinavian point of view, and that balance was what I was trying to strike. But I knew that I've developed, and I've, uh, you know, the entire thing is built on very, very uh, detailed Norwegian mythology, and I wasn't expecting anybody to get any of the jokes, and they did, and it was, uh, and somehow the movie just worked. I remember telling the distribution company just days before. And the producer just days before the, it was, we were showing it to anybody that we can't, sh we can't show this movie publicly. This movie is a piece of garbage. We cannot possibly show it. <laughs> oh, that's a good way to go out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but they can, they, they obviously we're going to do that anyway. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're not your best salesman, are you? <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, no. So that was, and then. Um, uh, an agent from WME, uh, Jerome Dubois, he was, uh, he contacted me on Facebook, of all things. And I remember his introduction was, hey, I'm an agent from WME. Uh, and we represent people like Ridley Scott and the Quentin Tarantino and da, 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 da. And I was like, yeah, I know who you are. <laughs> I know who WME is. Thank you. <laughs> so he came to, to Fantastic Fest and saw it there with me. And suddenly I have an agent, you know. Wow. In And... Uh, it was just a, a ride. The next few days was just extraordinary. Uh, and uh, and then Magnolia bought it uh, for the US and uh, they did a fantastic you know, thing out of it. And um, So were you doing immediately a bunch of meetings with studios and producers and the like and being sent scripts? And uh, what, what kind of things were you being offered or at least solicited about? I mean, you know, there are tons of stuff. I mean, from micro-budget movies, movies that have been made, movies that haven't been made, um, to to bigger stuff that I was in dialogue about, but not really probably in real uh, competition for at that moment. But the one thing I did do, though, was uh, Chris Columbus, he fell in love with Trollhunter, and he optioned, together with CG Entertainment, a, a Korean company, he optioned the rights for a remake, but at the same time as he did that, he also had a script called Carpe Demon that I fell in love with. That was just so much fun. It was written by him and the Hagemans, who I work with on Scary Stories. Uh. Um, uh, and um, and it was just this blast of a movie. And I was I was developing that with him and his company, 1492, for a long time. And it's still one of my big regrets that that movie never got made. Uh, but so is but, yeah making movies. What were some of them that did get made? If you can tell us uh, that you were up for, that you were in contention for. I mean, I I don't know. I feel like it's I don't know. I don't know if I dare talk about those because they're not. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I do. Yeah, I. There aren't. Uh, most of them aren't important movies in the grand scheme of things. So yeah. I'm in a way. Some of them I dodged a bullet. I think. Yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I remember after writing Hocus Pocus for Disney, they sent me the script for Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And I saw that 
And I just thought this is way too big for me to do as my first movie with kids and special effects and all that. But that was a big budget movie that became a big hit. And my first movie had kids and special effects and all of that. And it was Critters 2 for no money. So it was, but it was one of those things I still feel like I wasn't prepared to do that at the time. Yeah, no, it's, I don't know. I don't know how you choose and how, how that all comes together. It feels like sometimes like destiny, even though I don't really believe in that. It's, yeah, some things you're not ready for, even though you wish you were in hindsight and some things you're glad you stayed away from. Yeah. Uh, now I'm going to Ramos Creek in October to the festival there. So I'm going to, is that yeah. not, is that not uh, in the neighborhood where you shot Troll Hunter? Yes, it is. It definitely is. It's uh, it's right around the corner in a way, <laughs> speaking from at least comparatively from where you are now. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> so, yeah, no, you'll see a lot of those environments. Um, yeah. yeah. I'm looking forward to that. I mean, there is an interesting Scandinavian point of view in filmmaking, whether it's in the horror genre or in the, the crime noir sort of things because of the long the long winter nights and the short summer day, you know, all of, all of that darkness. There is also a, a sentient darkness about the characterizations and storylines that take place. Do you feel that that's endemic to the Scandinavians? I mean, yeah, maybe. Uh, it feels like we're, I don't know. God, the, the winters here are dark and they're practically sinister. Uh, they do play with your mind you're just begging for light at the end of the winter <laughs> and so I, if i have any excuse to go to la in a mid midwinter i'll jump on it <laughs> <laughs> and where are you uh, based now in london no no i'm in oslo i'm in norway i'm oh, uh, you're still there just out i live just outside the city yeah great great well you have a very distinct version of count dracula as a full monster it's not the gentleman who can sway the ladies and, and that sort of thing. So tell me about how that concept came about. Were you presented with a screenplay first? Yeah, this script has been in development for a long time. Uh, Bragi Shutt wrote the script 20 years ago and even more, I think almost 25. And it was announced in Variety in 2002. And it's been developed by many directors through the years with, with the producers uh, that are still... Uh, you know, I work with, <clears throat> and it just kind of um, at the end of working on scary stories, uh, I was working with Brad Fisher on the long walk, which we were attempting to get off the ground with New Line, and then this script came in through different through him and also Guillermo del Toro uh, provided some insight into it. I was part of pushing for me to take that movie and um and that was just an amazing thing so that just became kind of a competing project with the long walk but i kept working on the long walk and then until march 12th 2020 when i literally was sitting in my living room with two big suitcases packed ready to fly out to la to fly north in california to start prepping the long walk we were in mid-casting, mid-everything. Oh, my and then, God. And then Trump comes on TV and says, we're closing the borders. 
and I called New Line uh, and I said, I can't go because I can't get stuck in America. For I have no idea what this pandemic is going to become and not be able to go back home to my family. So we have to cancel it. And that's kind of what happened. And then I, um, we sit there and we start, but then we start working on, uh, on various things and I'm developing various things. And I'm also part of, for the next six months, I'm part of a, a big TV series at Netflix called The Magic Order, uh, which I um, took over from James Wan, who was supposed to direct the pilot there. And I ended up supposedly directing that pilot instead. And then they closed us down because Netflix was doing some changes to their, you know, to their the way they were working. And they canceled the show while we were in prep in Prague. Ouch. Yeah. And uh, then I, but, you know, the, the silver lining there was I called Brad Fisher and I said, well, if we want to go, we can go now. We can just stop prepping on the meter. And we talked to, you know, it was kind of a conversation with New Line and uh, about the long walk. And they ended up, you know, we, we, we just further ahead with the meter. It just was suddenly more likely that it would go. Uh, and we ended up doing choose you know doing that um but that's you know besides carpe demon and i'm not involved with uh with the long walk anymore but unfortunately that's really like one of my big regrets in well, well let's talk more about that because i know when we talked last time a couple of years ago the long walk was your next thing and as someone who's done a lot of stephen king work people are constantly coming to me and saying, I love the long walk. Can you get it to get me to Stephen King to get the rights for that? And it's like, no, you do your own work. <laughs> There's business to do. But people love that story and people have tried to make it for years and you are on the verge of making it. How heartbreaking was that? Uh, completely. I mean, absolutely. Uh, so the pandemic killed that one for me. Um, I think it hasn't killed the movie, but I, it's put me out of it. So that was very sad. I, I was so invested in it, and I'd gone. I'd shortlisted the whole movie with the DOP. Oh We'd my sat God. For, We sat for a month and a half with little Playmobil figures, uh, with finding all the camera angles, uh, taking pictures of every camera angle of how to shoot the movie visually. Yeah, because uh, it's such a difficult story to shoot. I mean, it's a simple yeah. story because it's just a people, a bunch of people walking on the road forever. Yeah. And how do you keep that cinematically interesting is the challenge of the movie. So it sounds like you're really in the thick of that. Oh, absolutely. I spent so much time on that movie. And then, and I had a really, I think I had a really good vision or take or whatever you call it for it, where I could, I could completely see the movie. And we had some wonderful young actors that were dying to do it. And, um, and no, I mean, it's one of those that's so far is the, in many ways, the biggest loss of my career is not to make that movie. Uh -huh. Also having been also, as you know, as you know, extremely well to have been part of having had the opportunity to be part of the Stephen King legacy yeah. would have been just something for me as a person, as a film lover and story lover and Stephen King fan, you know, a huge thing.
well, I feel so fortunate to have been involved in so many King projects, uh, you know, being such a, not just a genre fan, but specifically a King fan and to have been able to adapt some of my favorite things. And I know that this was one of your favorite King stories. Yeah, no, it's such an amazing, uh, such an amazing novel. And yeah, it's just one of those things, but we've got to move on from that. <laughs> yeah. So, well, let's uh, go on to Voyage of the Demeter and... And the actual take of Count Dracula, not as a count, but just as a monster. And the concept of that, because the movie's opening shortly, this will drop right before it opens. But uh, I'd just love to get, uh, without any real spoilers, what how that concept was approached. The, sorry, the concept of how he... Is, how you decided to do this one stage of Count Dracula, who is a creature who can take many forms. Yeah, no, I mean, it just felt like I wanted to portray Dracula um, as a really old man. Like, he's hundreds of years old. I mean, my God, what hasn't he experienced? He's um, been a mass murderer for hundreds of years. Yes. Uh, and he's. I wanted to feel that and see that on him. I wanted to feel his life and the, the, on the, the as a texture on his face and uh, the way he behaves and and um of course there aren't many people who can portray that kind of character on screen when you only have basically li very limited storytelling he's not a suave charming sophisticated uh, aristocrat in this movie though we have to hint to it we have to hint to the fact that that is his total character but in this movie he's a feral human being who is desperate for blood and he he loses his blood supply that is planned for this trip and um and he needs to kill start killing the crew to survive and he's at his he's on his last legs when he finally is able to start that process and i wanted to be for him to be frail i wanted him to be emaciated and be at the bottom of his entire life in, the, in this particular moment. And uh, eventually uh, re he rejuvenates and he then starts to kill off the crew, like in the novel, like he's supposed to in a way, like history tells us he did. Um, yeah, I yeah in, the original, in, in the original 1931, basically you see the ship leave, you see the ship arrive and you see Renfield. Mm -hmm doing is <laughs> when 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 it docks but this the entire movie is about the voyage and it's set there um how did it change you said it was in development for over 20 years how did what changes did you bring to the form of the story and the character i i mean this it's weird the script i've read a couple of cop uh, drafts uh, but not many i read two or three three i think and um the uh the original draft that i the first draft i read was basically Brog, one of Bragi's original drafts Bragi shot who came up with this and he uh and it's still the same story it's the same crew you know getting on board the same basic story outline and fighting dracula till you know the ship crashes in whitby like we know it does and um that was uh and and then we but we tweaked some things we tweaked clements's character we 
we tweaked Anna's character. They were different in in previous drafts. Uh, we tweaked Toby, the kid's character, and mostly that kind of stuff. And some set pieces we worked on. Zach Olkovich did an amazing job. Uh, that's the guy, the writer I work with through, in a way, through the pandemic. Um, so that was, um, yeah. Uh, well, just just technically, the film is a massive achievement. I mean, there's a combination. First of all, shooting on water, shooting ships, shooting water. Now, I know a lot of it's digital, but a lot of it was practical. Tell me how you bounced between and made the decisions of how to do what and how complicated was it on the stage when you were replicating being at sea? Yeah, it's um, we decided to shoot in Berlin. So we worked in, in Bobblesburg Studios and we decided then at a certain point in prep that it would be beneficial to move all the exteriors to Malta where we could then go into this huge tank they have there and shoot and build the entire ship. Where they did Popeye years ago with Robert Altman. They built that yeah. tank. Yeah, yeah a little the village, yeah, there. And we... Um, um, yeah, and we ended up sh uh, moving all the exterior ship stuff there. So we started in uh, with everything in uh, inside the ship. We did in uh, Berlin with a for like I think we shot for like four or five weeks, and uh, which was fun and grueling to a degree because it was just weirdly enough the set of the ship which was built as one big piece was so hard to film in especially oh, in the cargo hold it was just like every day was like walking on i don't know was was creating a whole new scenario of shooting a sh new shooting environment every day even though we went back to the same place again well you're again. constantly having to cut holes to be able to shoot uh parts of the set that reverses and things that are complicated to have all in one right yeah, yeah. And just the set itself was so realistically constructed to be at the bottom of a, you know, a ship. And it was really amazingly con built uh, for, with real timber, real wood, heavy stuff. And, and did you have it on a gimbal so that it could rock? Parts of it. Yeah, we had some we couldn't afford or couldn't do the whole big rig on that in the studio because it was just enormous um on our budget but we could uh so we chose some pieces that we put outside to be able to gimbal that needed that had scenes that needed it more um but we had we did do some rocking to certain parts uh where we had it on uh, also we had lights that were moving up and down like outside so we could control them and give you the feeling so you could feel the lights and then we had you know, all the lamps and loose things were on wires, literally just people standing with wires, pulling them to make sure that they moved at the same pace. It was kind of a very, you know, it was like, <laughs> yeah, very practical, old school. Well, this is your, by far, the biggest scale you've worked on. And yeah. it had to be quite demanding and challenging uh, as uh, another part of your cinematic education as you continue your career. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to uh, I was lucky to be able to make a horror movie at this level where, you know, there is a big studio movie and it's uh, it's a period piece and it's 
it's a journey across the seas of Europe and it's uh, Dracula. It's a big legacy to, to keep in mind and, uh, and the way we depict it and it has great actors and great characters. And it's a chamber piece in a way it's a close quarters kind of horror movie contained space kind of horror movie, but it's also vast in its uh, presence um, or the, the world we're actually in because we're out in the ocean. So it had all these visual elements. So when we, so you create, you try to create claustrophobia inside, uh, tr you know, the walls closing in, there is nowhere to escape. It's all these kind of feelings. And then when you, when we go to Malta to shoot all the exteriors, you still have to retain that weirdly enough that feeling of limitations, limits to where you are, but still also at the same time feel the, the you know, the endlessness of the, your surroundings. Uh, shooting on water, you had actual practical full-size ships there? Were they partial ship? Or... We had one and a half ships. So we had one ship that was fully our set, which we could walk from one end to the other, and we could play out any scenario we wanted. And we had... We had this idea in mind that we were going to be able to sh turn the ship around during the day for lighting purposes, because the light is obviously we did continuity of where the sun is when we're shooting in daytime is huge. And it's very hard to do in a, such, a, on such a massive set that that actually becomes. But we turned it turned out that was impossible because you have so much rigging around the ship and the ship itself just to get out, out onto it and da da da. And the ship itself, so it was like a 24 hour thing to, it was like a 24 hour thing to, to do it. So we were stuck with our position that way and that way. And, you know, you are in a tank, so you do have a view to the ocean, but in the end, you also have a larger view to containers and our crew and everything else the other way. So you end up having to shoot stuff you don't really want to see. So that's you start putting up blue screens and having to rely on rotoscoping to get rid of stuff because you have suddenly six actors in a scene and you can't shoot that all in one, one angle, especially when the sun is at the same time is moving around like crazy. <laughs> the day. So the like, light changing every time you do a setup on one of the other actors. Yeah. It drives everybody insane. So you have to start shooting stuff with backgrounds you don't really want. So you start shooting in lower angles and then you realize, well, you can't shoot the whole movie like, you know, from up there in nostrils <laughs> to avoid stuff, you know. Well, the good so, news was mostly it was shot at night uh, or most of the movie takes place at night. Yeah, in the end, you know, we, we shot like a couple of weeks on deck in daytime and then, uh, or in also in, we shot the big Varna scene uh, the harbor scene, which was not a harbor whatsoever. That's all, that's a really like full CG environment. Well, not full. The, when you come into the harbor there, you do see there, there is a building there, but it was extended CG. The whole, sh all the ships there are CG with, besides we had a half ship copy of the, um, the back half of the ship, but we had to extend the front half digitally. Um, so there is a lot of digital work in those kind of environmental uh, worlds. So what, whole, yeah, what was the most challenging part of shooting uh, on on this film? I mean, as you know, it's time. It's all about getting through the day and maintaining quality. 
and giving the actors space to live and breathe the moments and make errors and do the next take in a different way or you know and then at the same time there is so much technicality for every single shot and every single take you have numerous things that need in the most wilder scenes when there is a storm for example or something the whole the boat was on rockers so it was sitting you know rocking and at the same time you have wave machines that need to work because you see in the ocean you have water cannons splashing water onto the deck you have special effects makeup, which requires an enormous whole crew to run in and help Javier every between every take. And you have uh, rain towers that you need to wait for that takes a couple of minutes every time from you press start on the rain tower button. It takes a couple of minutes to get all the water up and over the whole ship and then cover the whole ship. And then you got to wait for it all to, you know, uh, to cover everything in view in the camera angle. And then you realize that your camera angle isn't quite the right one for that because it isn't, isn't covering something. And then you got to move the camera a little bit. Oh, in a, and everybody's standing there under tents and with, you know, uh, umbrellas and- And the water up. just pouring down. Yeah, water's pouring down and there's some stunt rig and da da da. But the thing is, all these things have to work simultaneously. Right. Uh, so you're waiting for six, seven, eight elements. Okay, that's running, that's running, that's running. For what to just to get one take off the ground. And then you got to stop because you got to communicate with everybody. When you've done the take, you got to talk to everybody. And, and then, then you have to adjust everything, uh, all yeah. of these seven or eight or nine elements, one or two of them working right, seven or six or seven. Yeah. Nine. Yeah. So you end up having to, oh, shit, we need to ch change the angle of that water cannon because it was hitting core in the face and it wasn't supposed to you know <laughs> <laughs> well you're very lucky because you started out using extensive cg when uh, when you made troll hunter so you understood the technical aspects of it which is great but movies are about storytelling and about characters in situations so you have to balance that that knowledge and expertise uh, in the technical aspects as well as the human and emotional ones that must have been quite challenging for you on a movie of this scape scope yeah absolutely it's truly the the thing that in the end it all boils down to is that whatever is whatever all this hoopla that is happening around you you kind of have to ignore it you have to be focused on what you have to be there with the actors and get the right moment and performance and the most energy you actually spend you have to rely on the crew first ad dp everybody around you to get all that stuff up and running so you can focus on what your main thing need is is to communicate with the actors and in a way the camera because that is the same in my world in my head that's the same thing how you film an actor is as crucial as almost as what the actor is doing because it depends on how you portray what he's doing he or she right um, the, the lenses make a huge emotional difference in how you yeah. shoot a scene and how you choose to shoot a close-up or a medium shot or whatever the the lens is a very eloquent part of filmmaking and is the essence of it yeah it's truly the essence of and i really believe that a performance captured by where the camera is and how it's how it's actually filming the actor is as crucial as anything so they have to trust that I know how to film their performance and I have to trust that, you know, everyone else. So it's, it's, it becomes a, a circle of trust as a movie should be. But the, um, so I'm there with the actors and uh, trying to pay as little attention as that 
to that all the rest as possible. But of course, when something goes wrong or you need to change something, you have to deal with that. But you're right, that balance is the trick is the is the trickiest one. Well, what was the first Dracula movie you remember seeing? Um maybe Coppola's or maybe well, no, that's 92. That's too, yeah. No, I've seen Dracula. probably maybe the Bela Lugosi from 31 or Langella from 79. I think the actually Adam. the Langella one because I, yeah. I've been so in love with John Williams's music my whole life. So he did obviously the music for that movie. And yeah. so I think I actually sought that out in my teens. And I would imagine that's my first one. Yeah. John Badham did a beautiful job with that. Yeah. And it's actually the one movie where the ship journeys portrayed uh, has more time in the movie well tell me about conceptualizing the look of dracula for this movie because it's very specific it harkens back a little bit to one of the forms he takes in uh, francis coppola's dracula the greg canham design but different tell me what you wanted it to represent i mean i wanted it to be uh, i mean the we called him the man, uh, the, you know, uh, the version that, the, how can I say it, the, um, the look he has for the beginning of the movie. And then we had one version that was more emaciated when, you know, the further out he gets, we called him the emaciated man. And then eventually <laughs> you have the bats, you know, and I wanted to make sure that the uh, the bat was more than referencing other movies. Of course, I know that Dracula or that that depiction in in uh, in Coppola's Dracula, but we we briefly looked at it, but it wasn't really a part of the inspiration source. Uh, I worked with Mike Hill for a bit uh, on designing, um, and he's Dracula. a brilliant sculptor uh, on his own, even outside of the world of makeup effects. And yeah. I know he's worked with Guillermo a lot, and his statues are phenomenal. Yeah, he did an amazing uh, uh, maquette of what Dracula would look like, and but then um, he wasn't. Uh, he couldn't be part of the rest of the journey. He was just part of my development process. And then we had Jöran um, uh, Lundström, who's uh, actually Swedish, and he uh, had he kind of worked out the whole with his team worked out the further look and the further development with the, with the actual head and with the body. And he is the one who actually created the creature design, the final word version of it. And, but that was, uh, you know, of course, an amazing, again, amazing to, to see these super talented people come up with all these great ideas for how the wings and how membranes and how muscles and how, what ear designs an eye and how should you know should the eyes look like this or like that there's you know and in the end we also wanted to have these kind of reflective eyes that has this animalistic quality to them right. uh, and make that feel uh, natural as you know as as a reflection more than as a you know as a demonic light and um, and and Brad Fisher was hugely important in this whole process because he he loves his horror movies. He's a huge fan of the genre, and he would stand there next to me, and he would be communicating with everyone as much as I would at times on everything. And we we're great friends, and have uh, we had a, a true love for this stuff. Um, 
and we're of course both in awe of Gilamo's uh, creatures and the way he and his team mates like like for example Mike Hill yeah and Javier uh, who portrays Dracula so we yeah. were yeah well the the fact that this is based on a, a novel written in the 19th century puts it in the public domain like Frankenstein is in the public domain so any of the studios can and have done adaptations of Dracula and Frankenstein. TriStar did Frankenstein with Kenneth Branagh directing it. Coppola did it for Columbia. But how did it feel doing a Dracula movie for, did it make a difference that it was actually for Universal to you? I mean, yes, in a way you're indirectly, but also it was for DreamWorks. You know, I was working with DreamWorks and Amblin uh, mostly, Universal my in. first employers yeah <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> it's yeah I, uh, so they're um so that's where my main they were my they were the studio in the movie universal takes over the movie upon the release and becomes becomes the studio then um or at least partner uh, with amblin on on you know marketing and how it all should plan out but the no, but having the universal logo and knowing it's in a way it's going to be part of the universal monster movie legacy, regardless of who, where it originates, is of course fantastic. Um, I do see sometimes online that people are putting it in contact with the general monster movie universe. Uh, right. The quote universal the, classic monsters. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm happy to see that. Not that I, I can't really say that it's technically part of that whatever that is at this stage but I, i'm always i think it's wonderful to see that people are putting it those things together yeah uh, do you think the studio appreciates what they have or do you think it's seen more as a commodity that they try and you know they try they did two versions of the mummy that were action adventure movies rather than horror films renfield is more comedy than anything else um, I know that Bill Condon had a really wonderful script for Bride of Frankenstein that he was going to direct, but it never seemed to happen. Do you think there's an appreciation for the history of the classic monsters in the tower, in the Black Tower at Universal? <laughs> the Black Tower. Um, <laughs> I think so, yeah. I mean, I think I've, I've had conversations with Universal through these last few years, even when the monster universe was in you know in the in the tom cruise world you know yes. when they were planning on those big big movies i had meetings on it even back then um so i and i'm i always felt like they really want to make right they want to do something that has um they can be proud of themselves these are just people sitting there with having been movie fans and then suddenly they're an executive in a studio or whatever they are and they're they love movies as much as we do. So I think they're also part they're also excited to be part of that legacy. Everybody knows about it. Sometimes things don't work out as you planned, you know, as that original bigger version didn't clearly didn't work out. But that doesn't mean that um it's anybody's fault in a way that it becomes because of studio politics. I think everyone I meet and talk to are really engaged and also, you know, also, of course, at uh, DreamWorks and Amblin, they were hugely engaged in making this the best movie we could possibly make it. Yeah. 
So uh, aside from the John Badham Dracula, what have been your favorite screen performances of Dracula? I mean, you know, of course, um, Max Schreck is wonderful. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, it's just the way he be moves and the way he stands and the way silent movies, obviously, it has its own things there. But And that's uh, Nosferatu in 1922. Yeah. Or, yes, of course. Yeah. And I think that's that's a depiction that still is maybe the I don't know in my world the most iconic one. Um, and Toby yeah. Hooper borrowed heavily in his Barlow for the uh, uh, his Stephen King adaptation for television of Salem's Lot. Yeah, of course. And that's you know if you would momentarily indulge in making that a Dracula, that's obviously a, a huge one as well. You know, Barlow is. It's a wonderful depiction, and no, I mean Bela Lugosi and Louis Jordan. Um, oh yeah, good. that was a great version, the television version. Yeah, yeah it was actually, and uh, and of course Gary Oldman. I mean, how can you not include him? Yeah, uh, totally iconic. And are you a Chris Lee or Bela Lugosi man? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think Christopher Lee is great fun. He's uh, he yeah. I, I got to say, I probably, I would probably lean towards Christopher Lee, I guess. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> what do you think is the enduring appeal of Dracula? I mean, starting in 1922 with Nosferatu, which was not a legally authorized version of, of the book Dracula. And so all of the prints were destroyed when it was released back in the 20s. But why do you think it endures. Why do you think the appeal of Dracula endures? I don't know. I think he, uh, it's such a, an amazing character. First of all, it's a villain. We all love great villains. And he's the greatest villain in culture, our culture, I would say. And, uh, and I think that alone is just a complex character who is sophisticated and who is at the same time uh, just a brutal murder but also there is alluring aspects to him there is uh there is a you know undercurrent of sexuality in the, the you know in the in the what what he is um and i think that always appeals and that has been pushed into completely different versions of a vampire from you know twilight on one end to renfield on another <laughs> Um, and actually ours in a way on the other uh, side of Twilight, um, which is just a brutal, simple version of it. And uh, I think there is uh, there's a timelessness about he brings out the worst in people. He creates evil. He creates evil within others. Uh, you know, he, he changes people. Uh, I, I think there is so many, he was exploring uh, oppressed sexuality in a way in the Victorian times. And he was exploring so many things. I feel like that somehow you gravitate towards one or the other side of this through, yeah. What, would you like to go back to the world of the universal classic monsters again? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are so many wonderful stories to be told in that universe who uh, would you so, like to approach <laughs> i don't i don't know i mean um, uh 
Jacqueline Hyde is really fascinating. Um, oh, yeah. uh, and uh, I mean, could you make another movie about the mummy? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote two different versions that were completely different. One of which uh, Clive Barker was going to direct and he, it was his story idea. And another one I took over for George Romero when he took on another project that fell apart. But oh. it doesn't seem like there'd be that many ways to do the mummy who basically shambles along and it's like, oh, we, here comes the mummy. We better walk a little faster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think, uh, but I think they did a, such a clever version of Invisible Man. I mean, I thought oh, that yeah. was spooky and smart and fun and yeah. Yeah, Lee Juan Hell did a great job with that. And it was a good success for the studio. Yeah, yeah. And it proved you could make us, you know, a small version of a movie like that. And if it's well enough written and directed and acted, it's, there you go. You got a classic movie. Well, the the name, the Demeter, is not well known to the general public. So it's not obvious that this is a Dracula story. How do you pitch the audience on the movie that they're coming to see? I mean, uh, technically, I, I mean, obviously, Universal is really concerned with that. I mean, they're working on that. They're pushing the name Dracula out there to make sure that the audience connects Dracula to, to the, you know, to the title. I do see that as a, you know, a big, uh, a big problem. But I think it's um, we love the I love the title. I mean, I could never change that title. That's literally what it is. I love long titles. I guess. Yes. Um, but the um, no, I mean, how do I? Uh, um, I mean, it is the story of a. What I love about it is that we're seeing Dracula from a point of view we've never seen him before, from a crew of just random, uh, regular people, workers on their ship, this old cargo ship that is of no note in history of the world. And just this enormous presence, this demonic presence, just happens to pass through this ship uh, on this journey to get to England, to get to London. And it's just this uh, this fight or this conflict between grounded, scientific, in a way, and um, uh, people, grounded people, real-life people who are just up against this demon that they don't even understand and i love that conflict uh, in most of my movies i think i'm dealing with the same thing over and over again um because i'm fascinated by that so i'm attracted to those kind of screenplays and i think i do see that people also enjoy that kind of stories yeah well where... I've, I've seen it described as uh alien on a ship yeah that's really where it, it's alien on a ship in 1897, just at this time, Dracula is the creature they're fighting. Yeah, well, you work a lot with claustrophobia. Um, I mean, the autopsy of Jane Doe is such a great movie and it's so small and contained, but it is so claustrophobic and filled with dread. Dread, I think, is a word that would describe a lot of your work in pursuing that. And how do you create a sense of dread? uh yeah I, that's a good question i mean it's just 
um, there are technical things. There are there is the focus on the unseen and the anticipation. I love anticipation. I love the Hitchcock theories of how you create suspense and and then the dread is the fear of what is there that you cannot uh, predict. And the more unpredictable you can make it within reason, uh, the better it is. The more uh, you can create a sense of foreboding dread. But it's also about sound. It's about camera angles. It's about pacing. It's about the performances of the actors. You know, this actually the the details of the actors' performances, how little can they portray, actually, is usually where I would go. It's not how big they can react, it's how little can they react. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was doing the Shining miniseries, every time I do a show, I try and find a word that best encapsulates what we're trying for. And the word for the Shining miniseries was dread. And you can just do a wide-angle shot from the floor of an empty room and have a low sound and create a sense of impending doom and dread. And, and, and you, you have so many different approaches to creating dread that it's just a fascinating cinematic concept to talk about. Yeah, it's so funny to speak with you because I love that. Uh, I was so excited to see that novel filmed that way, like, like intended. And I love the, the series. The oh, thank series. you so much. I appreciate it, that. Uh, yeah. no, it helped like... that King wrote the script. <laughs> <laughs> well, <I've... laughs> sure, that's a great bonus. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, but, what's uh, next for you? Would you ever, uh, w- would you consider going back to The Long Walk or has that been assigned to another director at this point? Or w- what, is, what is next in the Andre Overdahl pipeline? I mean, if if somebody asks me uh, to to go back to Long Walk, I would. Uh, but beyond that, I think it's I do believe and might be spoken for. But if uh, but beyond that, I'm I don't know. Of course, there is scary stories too. But every all dialogue on all my projects have naturally stopped because of right. strikes. Right, the strikes so, which are affecting everybody. Yeah, yeah. So, and also, you know, we had this beautiful premiere that Universal has created for us in New York, like party, you know, we were going to, we, they rented this ship and all this stuff and we're going to do it, but it all got canceled because of the strike. Yeah. None of the actors could come out in support of it. No. So then it wasn't kind of a point to have the part, you know, the premiere party there. Um, what was your favorite part of the process? I know every movie is different to make, but in, in this one in particular, which was so complex and so hairy, um, what was your favorite part of the process? Was it pre-production, designing the creature, designing the sets, being on the shoot and actually carrying through all these complicated elements and making them work together in concert? Was it post-production with music and sound effects and or building the CG? What's your favorite part of the process? I mean, it's always shooting, even though no matter how grueling a production day is, it's always watching the actors just nail a moment that you, you, you know, whether it's Woody doing a very complicated scene about Toby's character, his character Toby, or it's uh, Clemens, uh, Corey, or it's Ashling, or the group in group scenes that we just find the right tone. 
and this, the right interplay and the right energy between the characters and the actors. That's uh, and also seeing the visual, seeing we finding angles that are portraying these moments in the in the way I like uh, is also setting up the camera and seeing that okay we're covering this there uh, and we're doing this we're getting a big beautiful close up in that moment if we shift the camera over to him that you know all this stuff I I love playing with the camera yeah uh, and blocking I love blocking scenes I think that's so much fun yeah you say that uh, you you shot listed the whole movie for a long walk before and but it sounds like you're not married to those shot lists you find yourself when you're discovering the drama of what the camera sees when you're on the set yeah i, I think there is i mean there is this i guess this old idea that you need to come in prepared but you should pay attention when you're there yeah and, yeah and, and see what's see what's in front of you in a way and and relate to that and react to that and i will always do that but i also love working with the actors figuring out the scene in prep like talking through it and finding the right psychology for why am i doing this how am i reacting to this? seeing the actors engaged and get you know get into the moment and rehearsing with each other and um and figuring out and then seeing how that can play visually and then uh, you know i will ask that okay during rehearsals in prep Okay, so if you walk over there, would that feel natural? You know, if you walk uh, there, should you be close to the act, to the other actor at this moment? Should you approach the other actor in this moment? What feels natural and what looks good? And uh, what, what's the where's the balance between those things? Um, so I love that. Yeah. What will you be doing opening night? um i think i'm i'm going to la actually so i'm gonna be hanging with uh, who have the actors who are there <laughs> and right. with Vlad and mike and uh yeah you'd and, be jumping from theater to theater and watching audience reactions i mean we might go to actually see we might actually go to a movie theater and see it uh that might be we're talking about that yeah yeah see that's it. such yeah. a thrilling experience to see it with an audience for the first time yeah it is yeah. Well, Andre, I wish you all the best of luck with this. It's so great to catch up with you again and hope to be able to see you soon. And I look forward to visiting your homeland in October. Yes. Well, uh, welcome. I uh, think you're going to enjoy it. It's a wonderful festival, really great people and a great place to be. I can't wait. Well, good luck and thanks again. And I can't wait to see the audience response. Thank you. Talk soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.